Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students at Cambridge University chat with the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students with researchers and authors from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. My name is Rebecca King. I'm a second year PhD student in the Faculty of English Literature, studying the concept of dangerous magic on the early modern stage. Today, I'll be interviewing Selina Ballantyne, who is one of the organisers of an event called Three R's, Animals in Biomedical Research, which will be on in the University of Cambridge Admissions Office, new museum site, from 10am to 4pm on Saturday the 2nd of April, and again from 12pm to 4pm on Sunday the 3rd of April. Thank you so much for coming to chat with me today. So Selena, can you introduce yourself and what your role is? Yeah, um, so I'm Selena Valentine. I work for the University of Cambridge. I work in the Office for the um, Director of Welfare and Governance um, as a Licence Manager. Um, previous to that, I've worked in animal facilities for about 22 years, um, starting out as an animal care person all the way up to manager and leadership level. So um, I've got a good background into what we're talking about today. So hopefully yes. <laughs> it'll all go well. Awesome. Thank you so much. So yeah, what we're talking about today is um, you're doing a talk for the festival. Is that right? And it's on the three R's? Well, we have a stand at the festival. A stand, and it's okay. based around the three R's. Um, and there'll be representatives from the university there okay. over the course of the weekend to talk to members of the public and show them some of the stuff we do. So it's going to be a stall um, and some interactive stuff at the st- yeah, stall. Yeah, we're hoping right. so. We, we're um, planning to have things like um, isolators, um, that people can actually have a play about with. Um, What's an isolator? Oh, so an isolator is um, like a big bubble that holds animals and it can either hold them for containment purposes or, um, oh. but they could be really clean animals as well, um, which is what we use them for. Um, and that keeps everything from our atmosphere out of their environment to keep them clean. So you can actually sort of go inside it. This is like a You typically big... stand outside and put your arms through oh. inside in some gloves and things and then do, and then they're housed inside in oh, their okay. own micro environment. Oh, that sounds like fun. Okay, awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, um, so the, the the stall and what you're talking about there is based around this this principle of the three R's. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And can you tell me what they are? Yeah. In simplest terms, um, they're known as reduction, replacement, and refinement. Um, when you work with animals in research, it doesn't matter what type of research it is, and it doesn't matter what position you hold. Um, these are the three things that we try to adhere to and have at the forefront of our mind with whatever work we're doing, whether that's um, welfare and care or whether it's actually science-based. Um, we're always trying to implement things to improve the lives of the animals and, and in turn that actually helps to improve the data quality of the science that comes out. Actually, that's a good point. I was going to ask you a question about that. So I, I was watching this video that the university had produced and it said uh, it had this quote, um, good animal welfare and good science go hand in hand. Um, so that sort of sounds like what you're saying there. Can you talk a bit more about how that how that works? Why, why does the animal welfare help the science? Absolutely. Um, so... We always we want to produce really high level science, and we want to do that. We have to reduce the variability, the, the data that you might get. Um, a healthy, happy animal is always going to produce a better, um, better data set than the one that's unhappy or unhealthy. If you think about ourselves, we always work and perform better when we're in a good place, when we feel happy, when we're motivated, and things. We always perform much 
less well when mm. we're demotivated or we, we've got a cold or we feel unwell or something else is going on that's distracting us. And the principle's the same for the, for the animals. So by promoting good welfare, we promote better scientific outputs. Awesome, yeah. And I suppose there might also be things like stress chemicals and things that yeah. could get in the way. And... Absolutely. Those types of things can create variabilities mm. um, depending on the research that you're looking at as well on how that comes out in your data sets. Right, so it's like a win-win if it the is, animal's absolutely. happy. <laughs> awesome. And, and I read up, up as well and I found that... Um, Apparently in the UK, we've got some of the toughest legislation in the world, was the phrase that was used. Um, so first of all, I was going to ask a bit more about what kind of legislation we have in the UK, um, and also whether you think anything needs to be updated or improved. So I think it's fair to say we, we're quite, we have quite a tough um, legislation, um, particularly when it comes to protecting animal welfare. Um, but also allowing us to develop and um, create meaningful science. Our legislation is stringent in terms that it's also acceptable to other countries. So our permissive laws are adopted by many other countries, um, including the European Union, oh. and their law is um, aligned very closely to our pre-established laws. Oh, right, so they, they saw what we were doing and adopted, it sort yeah. of started in the UK? Yeah, our laws have, always, have been around since 1986, mm. um, and in 2012 um, we implemented part of the EU directive into our law, um, and theirs is very strongly aligned with ours. Oh, cool. Um, but we have to recognise as well that legislation for us is um, a societal opinion. Um, when we look at how it's governed and things, that mm. very much comes into play. And stakeholder interest does as well. Mm. Um, generally, the UK public is supportive of us using animals in research if it's for specific reasons and those reasons are acceptable. And things, those acceptable reasons are things like medical and veterinary research, mm. pharmaceutical industry and research, you know, if you think about what's been going on in the world, um, yeah. and developing vaccinations, <laughs> therapeutics, medicines, um, pharma is a massive thing. Mm. Um, but like I say, all of that has to be governed by um, the Animals, Animal Scientific Procedures Act 1986. Um, and we're bound by that and there's very many aspects to that and very many responsibilities and people that have to take a pivotal role in making mm. sure that our animals are protected at all times. Excellent yeah so that one act is that covers all animal research in all the different genres or are there sort of like slightly different versions of the act? There are other acts as well um, that feed into it depending what you're doing. Right. You've got the Animal Welfare Act um, that doesn't cover science but there are aspects of that so if we think about the Animal Welfare Act and Five Freedoms um, we apply five freedoms to animals in science. There we have other bits of legislation, regulation, codes of practices, for example, that are built into ASPA, which is the Animal Scientific Act kind of acronym, um, that we have to work to as well. And that covers everything from um, lighting conditions, noise conditions, temperature, humidities, oh, wow. floor <laughs> space, to make sure that if you've got a cage of mice, for example, they've all got a suitable amount of space to have their own mm. space as well as being social. Um, and that goes right through to dogs and non-human primates, etc. We've got the Veterinary Surgeons Act as well, um, because we have named veterinary surgeons that, that support the welfare of the animals, but obviously they have their own act that they have to adhere to. So it all feeds in together. Gosh, it's a lot of, a lot of laws, but it sounds like it, they're useful laws and yeah. they're helping to ensure all sorts of um, you know, good basic standards of care. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. In terms of anything needing to be updated or improved, what what do you think about that? Is it is it pretty good what we've got at the moment? I, I my opinion is pretty good, um, yeah. but you, as like I say, it's societal opinion um, 
plays massive parts. So as public opinion and morals change over time, we could expect that um, the public support for it might change as well. And that with that comes updates, mm. improvements maybe. They might be tighter, tougher improvements. Um, but we have to bear in mind as well that if that happens, there needs to be a balance between what we put in place and the ability to create practical science and actually continue to move forward um, and make improvements in medical health because what we don't want is it to be so stringent that the science is impossible to create. Sure yeah absolutely so it's about that balance. Yeah. Um, so what are some examples of times when we've been able to reduce uh, or replace animals that have been used for research? Um, so one big thing that's out there at the moment, organoids, um, that and things like cell cultures and computational models are all great replacements, um, not replacements, my apologies, reductions um, in, the t in the amount of animals. Sorry, what's an organoid? Um, it is a, I don't know how best to actually <laughs> describe this. Um, it's a, it's, you take an or, uh, some cells from an organ and then you grow them a bit ah. more into that organ. So, um, so it's not, a, it's not a, an animal on its own, it's like a but living cells? Yeah, so if yeah. you take liver cells, for example, and then you can develop them into, um, you can divide them and grow them into... Like a little liver blob. Yeah, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, they're all great for reduction purposes. They allow us to do bits of work without actually having to then use animals ah, to do it. Very clever. When we talk about replacement, though... Um, you know, it's the end game. Um, it's something we would all we're all striving to achieve. But actually, there's very little, if anything, that you can use to replace animals at the moment, mm. and that's because the all the science that we do, particularly when it comes to medical research and, and veterinary research, you need to be able to base it on a living system to know if it's going to work before we're allowed to put into human trials. Um, and that's um, governed by the Home Office. We're not allowed to do it and human trials until we've proved it works in the um, living system. I see. And at the moment, there just isn't that technology out there. We haven't yet developed something that recapitulates the human system in computational form or otherwise that allows us to go in that in depth and move away from animal use. I didn't realise that you're actually not allowed to use. So I think sometimes people say, oh, I'd volunteer to have a go, but you actually can't by law. You no, must we have test to, on animals first. Yeah, we right. have to do this before we can then and prove that actually we um, aren't going to, or as much as we can prove, we aren't going to harm human beings. Yeah, right absolutely. Put it into them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and... Um, Oh yeah, I was, well I sort of asked this and you, you've kind of already answered this, but um, uh, are there any more solutions on the way? So you sort of said, well, for now it looks like actually replacing animals, I mean that's very far off, we would need to somehow be able to replicate the complex systems that you get in a living thing. But um, are there any more maybe um, reduction solutions that you know of on the way? We're always working towards them and I don't doubt that they will come up. Um, something that's um, a bit more up and coming at the moment is the use of human cell culture systems. And this allows us to take um, cells out of human organs, and these could include stem cells. Um, and that gives us the ability to genetically modify them. Mm. And once we can genetically modify them, it allows us to start studying new biologies. Um, and it also gives us platforms to perform early drug discovery that we would have done in animals previously, mm. but now they're you know working towards being able to do that without the use of animals oh, so, so the genetic modification is actually a way of reducing the number of animals that you can yeah. use oh that's really interesting um what was i going to ask this a, when you said that i had a had a little like mini question as a response to that now it's just completely gone from my mind um oh yes yeah, stem cells so just remind me from biology at school <laughs> stem cells are ones that can can go into different lots of different types is that right yes. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so so they're useful if we extract 
stem cells, we can kind of like make them into different kinds of cells and then... I don't know enough about the science, (laughs) to be honest, but I believe that's generally how it works. (laughs) That's just really useful for testing things on. Okay, cool. So so human stem cells can be a a viable alternative for animals. That's really interesting. Um, And then, um, oh yeah, I saw on the website, so mice in particular are being used to fight cancer. And is that happening at Cambridge, in the the Cambridge? It it happens in in many research Mm. facilities. um, And Cambridge are also merged with um, CI, which is the Cancer Research Cambridge Institute as well. So we have a branch of that, certainly. Um, but yeah, they, um, they're they a great model because they help us to understand the mechanisms that underpin cancer um, in terms of how they grow and how they spread. Mm. Um, and again, because mice can be genetically altered, um, it allows us to study the genetic causes of cancer. But the physiological aspect of them as well allows us to also study the reproduction of tumour types in the correct tissues and body systems as mm. we would expect to see them in the humans. And now we're not obviously completely comparative um, in terms of mouse versus human, but it does give us realistic kind of views and perspectives of how it works um, to help us then turn these into new ways to develop and diagnose and treat um, the disease. So presumably almost every kind of cancer treatment that we have has gone through, we have because of all, you know, lots of mice and, and lots of animal testing. That's, yeah. Yeah, yes. pretty much every single thing we'll, we'll I can't, have. I can't yeah. think of one myself that hasn't, so. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And why, so you mentioned um, about some of the some of the qualities of mice that make them useful for this kind of research, but, um, but, but as you said, they're very different from humans. So why mice? Of all the other mammals and animals, why, why mice? We always have to, we're governed by the law and the law um, requires us to use the animals of least sentience um, that we can for the work that we need to do. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't studies using animals of higher sentience than mouse. So, for example, non-human primates, dogs, cats, but they're all considered um, more sentient. Mm. We also have to think about the fact that um, the public are just more familiar with them when we talk about think about dogs as companion animals. Um, but mice uh, have a, a lower level of sentience. But it's not just that. Mice are easily produced. Um, they have multiple um, offspring in one litter Mm. Um, their gestational period is very short Um, their lifespans only a couple of years it allows us to then um, study the development of Mm. of cancers and things through a lifetime um, rather than just a small window which obviously with a human you've got to wait many 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 years to get to some stages of development of cancer Mm, the mouse that's basically it's fast forwarded so that you can get there quicker um, and because we can modify them and manipulate them as well mm. that allows us to put what what constructs we want to study into a mouse so you can either actually do, um, study it through induction and that means manipulating um, the embryo um, with cell constructs and things and then having it born and it is born and will have a genetic predisposition to cancer mm. or we can implant cancers so we can take some of those cells from a human cancer for example and implant it into a mouse and make a humanized model um, and study it that way so they're just is they're very versatile um, but also actually really interestingly um, mice aren't necessarily always in, um, for other studies the most used animal that we have um, Mammal-wise, yes, um, but we have things like zebrafish um, and um, flies that are, are widely used as well for different parts of research. And we can do some research on them and actually then translate that into mammals later on if we need to. And I was going to ask about with mice as well, um, 
so you know you mentioned that they you can have very many generations quite quickly that means presumably you can also track um generational uh, inheritance of kind of cancer genes and things like that i i don't know if that kind of thing is going on yeah, yeah? yes it, it does allow for that kind of traceability to occur which again um if you're doing it with just humans is you know you can imagine how long it's centuries take centuries to get meaningful data from it so. sure awesome okay so that so those are the most used is it flies zebrafish mice Mice are the most used mammals, zebrafish, um, amphibians, and flies. Is, I mean, it's not always been around, but it's something that's used a lot for different types of research. Interesting. What about flies? What are flies used for? Uh, I, I am not familiar enough with them. Um, malaria studies, we certainly use them for that. Um, but then we use them to help feed on mice and things as well. So there's a combination of the two there, so we can um, see how the disease translates into the mouse, but also what's going on with the flies. Interesting. And or I bet they have mosquitoes the... even. Flies. Oh gosh, right. <laughs> Sorry. Mosquitoes. Okay, yeah. So, so it's mosquitoes rather than flies. No, no, but... flies are used as well for other stuff. So it's just okay, um, right. that there's there's so but there's they come in abundance. There's so many of them that we sometimes forget that they're there, and they're also used in large numbers in research. Right, and I bet they you know they reproduce really quickly and have a very quick lifespan. Yes. So again, same sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, similar kind of. Um, considerations when you're picking which animals to use interesting okay cool um uh oh yeah and then i are animals ever able to retire so yeah after after they've been used what happens to animals do they ever kind of go to a nice farm or is that just no um, no no it's, <laughs> too sentimental it's, it's not sentimental at all um yes um we can retire them depending on on the species that we're using we can certainly retire them um we have to adhere to legislation again there's strict rules around it um it partly depends what they've been used for and whether it's actually um from a health and safety perspective right if it's a contagious disease you don't want to no exactly um but also um i mean from our side we rehomed um into um, 2021 one of our facilities rehomed 58 um animals a mixture of guinea pigs and hamsters um, but we have the legislation, but we also have our own vetting processes in place, which are quite stringent. So we're not just going to let these animals go off to any anyone. Um, it's very much like if you were getting a dog from a shelter or something, how they'd come and check you out. We do the same thing. Awesome. So yeah, so so some animals do get retired um, if it's safe and if there's a good yes. home for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I, you sort of answered this one earlier um, because you said it's quite, we're quite far off not ever needing to use animals in research but do you think there will ever come a time it's like i said earlier it's the goal isn't it um it's kind of the dream to get to that point um i don't i don't think it's possible to say that we absolutely will ever get to that point completely um but there's developments all the time and progression in science and things and you think about organoids and things like that they weren't around um that long ago they're, mm. they're relatively new so there's always steps forward um, so you never know, one day, maybe, um, but I don't think that it's, it's not something we're going to see in the near future at all. But this is, the, so this is the best way for now, the three R's is kind of the best, most uh, responsible way yeah. of, of dealing with animals in research. Yeah, yeah, awesome. and we, we work to it all the time, we, and this, I can't see this changing at all, and <laughs> um, we, you know, upholding the welfare of the animals 
only introduces good science and that's what's best for everybody. So there's a difference between animal technicians and the people doing the research, that's right? Yes, yeah. So um, animal technicians are the guys that work on the cage on the ground floor with the cages and the animals themselves as on a day-to-day basis um, and they care for the animals. They look after the well-being, they do checks on them every day to make sure that they're in conditions that we expect them to be in. Um, they feed them depending on the animal that you're working with. If it's a dog, for example, they'll play with them. Um, do um, Make sure that basically the welfare is upheld and they're happy and ready for the work that they need to do. Um, but they also will work alongside the research scientists. So these are the people that um, are doing the science mm. um, and so they might come and do some of the actual experimental work themselves but they might ask for support from um, welfare research technicians um, who will help and obviously they monitor the animals after experiments have been done to look, watch their welfare make sure they're not suffering anything that's unexpected or um, outside of the remit that's been allowed with the authorization of the license that allows the work to happen um, so they work hand in hand, but there's a very significant difference. Um, technicians have a lot more emphasis on um, husbandry training mm. and how to look after the animals. Um, researchers will be trained to a degree for handling and um, how to work with the animals to do their science and things. But really it's the people on the ground that right. um, have the hands-on work with them. So well, presumably a lot of the three are... Um, uh, stuff that, that's kind of done by the researchers rather than the animal technicians is that right? It depends how you look at it really right. <laughs> um, it, it depends what the refinement is if it's because um, you can have, have refinements anywhere from um, how you administer a drug for mm. example through to how we actually care for the animals um, and either way te- if technicians are performing some of the administration they will also have um, interactions with those types of refinements um, but if you consider, for example, we, if we work with germ-free animals, that's just coming to the top of my head, um, I said earlier about isolators. Mm. Um, so we would keep animals that are germ-free, so these animals don't have any um, gut microbiota. So um, they're very susceptible to anything environmentally, so they have to be kept really clean. Um, and then what we would do is put something specific into them to make them nitrobiotic and then study that particular disease. Um, but we would typically transport germ-free animals in an isolator in an isolator. So if you think about a big square bubble that's got shelves and cages with um, lids on, but they aren't sealed lids because they need to be able to breathe. Right. Um, and then you put it so in a. You want to move it from one facility to another. It's quite open. There's obviously we have. Um, ways to prevent movement and things like that but there's always a risk um more recently we've in, there's um, the introduction of a nitrobiotic germ-free isolation cage which means that they can move in their own environment with a lid on and and not have that risk of stress and it's a refinement for them mm-hmm. in that sense and a refinement for us um, so a really practical solution to yeah. something that's good for the science and good for the animal because it's it keeps stress levels down and it and it makes the environment more um, conducive to what's yes. being done. And technicians can have um, input into these types of things as well. Mm. In fact, there's some um, companies that work with us that promote this type of thing. And if you can come up with a product that's really good for refinement for welfare for animals, um, there's competition and then they will make and sell a product. Oh, wow. So um, there's one I'm thinking of is, a, is like a sombrero feeder thing <laughs> um, um, to 
put things um, like supplementary food in for, for rodents, for example, so it's not in amongst their bedding and things, um, and it's easily accessible for them. Oh, that's really um, cool. So um, can you talk a bit more about enrichment then? Because mm-hmm. So one of the things that an animal technician might need to do is make sure that the animal's got stuff to do. They're not, they're not just in a kind of box. No. Um, and they're, they're having quite a, you know, a, happy, a happy life. Um, so can you talk, talk a bit more about that kind of thing? What sort of enrichment do animals get? Well, it depends on the animal. Um, non-human primates, for example, if you're working with macaques, they, they live in harems, um, so they have a social structure. They have a foraging food on the ground. So what we're trying to do is allow them to exhibit natural behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps to enrich their environment. And um, if we go all the way to the other end, to mice, for example, um, they can have fun tunnels, they can have um, red houses. Um, they, the, bar, the way the cages are made, there's like a grid across the top that holds their food, but it allows for climbing um, behaviours and things as well. Um, nesting materials because they when they like to nest they like to rip everything up and make a big nest themselves and then they'll pull it all apart and start again um, so we give them all of those types of things depending on the species and its requirements mm. we implement as much as we can do so we make it um, as natural environment as we possibly can whilst within a laboratory setting so it's similar uh, the kind of dynamic is is a bit similar to I guess being a zookeeper versus being someone who works at a zoo doing research so you've got a kind of an interaction yeah but one is a a bit more um, hands-on and uh, I guess um, practical and yes. then the other one's more sort of yeah, the academic I think that's, side. I think that's a good parent. <laughs> <laughs> and were you an animal technician is that right? I started as, a, as an animal technician oh. all the way back in 1999 <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah I so I've gone started out as a trainee mm. so coming in to do the training um, all very new out of so I'd done them um, at sixth form, I'd done an animal care diploma and MBQ, and then I just came straight into this industry, um, and yeah, trained right from the bottom. And whenever you train, all these elements of, of the three R's are built into it. Was that there when you started, or is the it fairly new? Oh, no, that's the been three around. R's have been around for a very long time, oh, okay. um, and it's ingrained into you mm. as a technician. It's ingrained into you right from day one on how you handle your animals, how you treat your animals, how you look after them, and always thinking about actually can we improve this this way or mm. that way. Um, and yeah, so I started there and have come all the way up through um, kind of experimental and then um, a welfare officer. So we have different people with different responsibilities under the law, um, and so now I've moved away to do more regulatory compliance work um, because it's as important as any other aspect of the animal research because it helps us to make sure that mm. everything's been done correctly um, and when adhering to the law and by doing that we're making sure the animals are protected. Amazing. You mentioned um, a little sombrero that someone had invented. Has it, have you had a favourite uh, improvement or refinement that you've seen over the years? My favourite, um, and I don't know how well it's known actually, and it's probably my favourite because I was involved, um, we were doing um, containment work with parasitic um, parasites and um, the way they would put them into um, our animals would be um, to have the animal kind of upright in a tube and their tail dipped into something um, for however long it took um, and they would be conscious. Um, we came up with a... Um, piece of equipment that basically allowed us to anaesthetize the animals short term and have them laid down all nice and warm and lovely <laughs> and their tails dipped into it down the bottom. <laughs> like a spa. <laughs> so yeah, so basically they went to sleep for a little while. Um, they, they were exposed the way that we exposed them to these particular parasites and then they come round and went back to the home cages. Um, but they used to be held upright like this 
um, and um, just with the tails dipped down whilst mm. they're awake. So um, they're not very nice, and yeah, a bit stressful and things, yeah. um, but now they don't really know what's happening. Oh, so. oh that's cool, I like that. Um, I like the idea of them having a nice nap. <laughs> um, awesome. And then, so I, I didn't add this to my list, but you mentioned like the openness of research. I wondered whether you could talk a bit more about um, the, the principle of openness. It's a word that comes up a lot in the documentation that I've seen and yes. about the event. So why is it important to do things like the, the event you're doing at the festival and chatting with me? Why is it, why is openness so important? Well, if you think back, um, God, however many years, there seemed to be um, quite a lot of um, myth and secrecy around the research that we do. And of course that promotes um, distrust um, in the public and we always will have groups that don't agree with what we do um, but they very much had much more power over what the public heard and saw um, a long time ago and the idea of openness is to reassure the public um, that we actually we are doing everything that we can do to maintain the welfare of our animals um, and how and show them how we conduct the science and it's not barbaric or anything like that um, that we are governed by laws and um, we have to have relevant authorities in place for any piece of work we can't just go and do whatever we like whenever we like and so there is a body that's been set up that's called the Concorda of Openness um, for which we're signatories of um, and many many um, institutions that work in research have signed up to this and so basically we have agreed that wherever we can we will be open about the work that we do and how we conduct it um, and yeah so we're answerable to the public in that sense and you can see the trend change over time and the more open we've become the less mm. issues there are with act activists and things um, and the more trust the public has and that and you can see how that and how they've become more accepting of the fact that research needs to be done for medical reasons but we all agree it shouldn't be done for cosmetics for example so yeah that's really interesting yeah um, and um, and I think um, I saw some numbers there are some numbers published um, in terms of openness so you, it's things like how many animals are used and there's there's some really good data that you can access. Anyone can access, right? Yeah. To do with what's what's actually going on, and yes. and also to to I guess to um uh, to kind of chart um, reductions, refinements, and all the things that we're talking about today. So there's quite a lot of openness in terms of just raw information, isn't there? There is. So um, what um the people responsible for doing the science that hold the licenses that authorise them to conduct their work, um, they have to keep stringent records. Um, and the reason they have to keep the stringent records is because they are required by law um, annually to return their figures um, for statistics um, so it can be viewed. And mm -hmm. these are published on the Home Office website so we can see what numbers of animals are being used. Even flies? Do they, do they have to count the flies? <laughs> So it's important to understand that some animals, so we we have to do this for protected animals and when we call them protected, it just depends on what type of animal, if they're vertebrates mm. um, and what stage of development they're in. Right. So um, mammals, for example, are, are protected from two thirds of the way through gestation, um, where a cephalopod is protected from the point where it hatches. Um, oh. and a fish from the point where it's capable of independent feeding. So if it predates in that, that point in their gestational cycle, for example, um, they're not necessarily protected. 
Um, and if they're invertebrate, they're not necessarily protected. Right. So they don't have to. <laughs> they don't have to count how many flies no. are being bred, and all that. That'd be a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> exactly. I think that was all my questions. I was sort of like just rambling at the end, just asking okay. extra random ones. Thank you so much That's for talking okay. to me. Really, really interesting. If you're listening to this before the second of April, twenty twenty-two, you can go and see Selena and ask more questions about the three R's at the display which will be found in the University of Cambridge Admissions Office New Museum site from 10am to 4pm on Saturday the 2nd of April and again from 12pm to 4pm on Sunday the 3rd of April. Thanks for listening.